Welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy, and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Stacy, this week you have less of a marital misadventure and more of a hostage situation, perhaps? That's about it. I'm covering Jimmy Page, uh, guitar god, creator of Led Zeppelin, and um, one time when he was in his late 20s, he romanced a 14-year-old girl in California, hence why we're calling this episode Going to California. Some call it romance, some call it child sexual trafficking. I mean... Before we are going to California today, though, for some Led Zepp trash, I do have this magic mirror right here to give some huge thanks to our newest Patreon supporter, Stacy. Start us out. Thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Heather J, Kimberly B, Sandra J, Agna Tay, Lindsay T, and Jessica K. So much thanks to all y'all and all of our folks over there in the Patreon community getting Easter eggs at the end of all our main feed episodes, all kinds of bonuses too on the regular between dumpster dives and spider webs. We did also do something a little fun this week with a trashy twist on some classic fairy tales too. Definitely. I would say this is a classic story today too, Alicia. But it sure is not a fairy tale. <laughs> no, no. It was the 70s. Everything was weird. Let's go, go, go. Stacy, the story is so trashy, I don't even have a good intro in for you, so da-da-da, take it away, Stacy. <laughs> Alicia, we've done a lot of cataloging of the history of rock and roll on this here podcast. There was a young Ike Turner scoring a number one hit in 1951 with Rocket 88. Many people consider this one of, one of the, or the first rock and roll record. There was Tina Turner transforming John Fogarty's Proud Mary into a symbol of power two decades on. In the intervening years, of course, rock and roll, a term borrowed from sailors that once described the motion of being on a ship at sea, evolved drastically. A quintessentially American blend of styles and cultures was further transformed when it washed ashore in England, and by the late 1960s, the world was encountering the sounds and the spectacle of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Genesis, the Who, and, of course, perhaps the heaviest rock band ever, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin formed in 1968 in the aftermath of the breakup of the Yardbirds, which guitar player Jimmy Page had been a member of, at least briefly. Jimmy, who is our specific subject today, intended to form a supergroup with fellow guitar god Jeff Beck, who passed away last week, RIP, as well as the Who's Keith Moon and John Entwistle, but that project never really got off the ground. Instead, Jimmy put together a group that could fulfill a few dates still on the now-dissolved Yardbirds calendar, over in Scandinavia, performing as the new Yardbirds. And this lineup absolutely clicked. It was Jimmy with vocalist Robert Plant, bassist and keyboardist John Paul Jones, and drummer John Bonham. It was Led Zeppelin. It was Led Zeppelin. I'd like to talk for a minute about the absolute light speed with which things happened in music back then. I don't think this type of calendar could occur in music today. The Yardbirds broke up in July of 1968. The new Yardbirds, the future Led Zeppelin, played together for the first time in August of 1968. 
They toured Scandinavia together in September of 1968. They were recording their first album by the end of September. They were touring the UK in October. They renamed themselves Led Zeppelin late in October after they received a cease and desist letter from the old Yardbirds saying, you can't use the new Yardbirds. We told you you could only do that for Scandinavia. And in November... The nascent Led Zeppelin was signed to an extremely friendly recording contract, the likes of which only like a Taylor Swift can negotiate these days, with Atlantic Records, which effectively gave them full creative control over songs, albums, release schedules, touring, and their publishing rights. Yeah, that's unheard of. The day after Christmas 1968, again, this all kicks off in July. Mm -hmm. Led Zeppelin began a seven-week North American tour of the U.S. and Canada picking up the dates of a canceled Jeff Beck group tour. Their debut album, Led Zeppelin, was released in the U.S. on January 12th of 1969. It was six months. Six months. Hugely successful first record, too. Look, Led Zeppelin is widely considered to be one of the most influential rock and heavy metal bands of the 1970s, really of history, particularly known for those just super heavy guitar driven like it's it's a sound oh, they were rock and roll gods yes their live performances were absolutely electric they could run for as long as 4 hours they would just riff and improvise and medley and it was a thing holy cats 4 hours 4 hours robert plant's scream singing and the otherworldly motifs of their music created You know, these other branches within rock, like the band Rush, which also formed in 1968, Canadian prog rock concept album, like all of that. You can really draw a line like the the type of people who are into Led Zeppelin could easily find themselves into Rush. There's a lot of overlap. All I can see is Jack Black and his (laughs) school of rock chalkboard of how everybody in music is created. It's maybe one of the most genius things ever committed to film we should we should find a screen grab of that and uh use it with this episode anyway led zeppelin would release eight studio albums between 1969 and 1979 including their critically acclaimed untitled fourth album untitled although variously described as led zeppelin four so so (laughs) runes whatever um that was in 71 and physical graffiti in 1975 This was also in the era where rock stars had kind of started breaking bad, more or less. Oh, yeah. So a big part of the Led Zeppelin legacy is the stories about the trashed hotel rooms, you know, TVs thrown out of windows, extravagant drug and alcohol use, and of course, their involvement with groupies, those glittering young women who were taking the sexual revolution to the pinnacle of its glamour. It's one of those relationships in particular that we're going to be talking about today. Because while Jimmy Page is definitely a guitar wizard and was even rumored to have been an actual magic practicing wizard back in the band's heyday, he says he was just really into Aleister Crowley's work. He definitely crossed lines he should not have with a 14-year-old model when he was a man in his late 20s. Oh, God, no. Let's get into it. No. James Patrick Page came into the world on the 9th of January. Happy birthday, Jimmy Page. 1944. The son of what I think we would call an HR executive at a plastics plant uh, and a doctor's secretary. Pretty middle class, pretty stable upbringing. His parents did divorce at some point, but he may have been an adult when that happened. I'm not sure. He was an only child. Lots Lots of attention. They moved a couple of times when he was a kid. So when he was a baby, they lived very close to Heathrow Airport and the noise was 
just off the charts, just sure. airplane noise. So they move once and they end up further from the airport, but more directly under the flight path. Oh, no. And so it was actually louder at the second house. So finally they make this third move like to the other end of London area, Epsom in Surrey. They settle at 34 Miles Road. If you rent there, congrats. That's Jimmy Page's old home. In the autumn of 1953, young Jimmy was delighted. Well, not immediately, but later he heard some Elvis records, and uh, he was delighted to discover something that would take a lot of the edge off of the boring 1950s for the budding teenager he was becoming. There was a guitar in the house. No one knew where it came from. Was it left by the old tenants? Had some friends of the family gifted it to them, unbeknownst to them? It was just a mystery guitar? Just this Spanish guitar, like a... Huh. Big-bodied acoustic guitar sitting in the house, but it was a guitar. And how small the chances of fortune are. Mm-hmm. He took a few lessons. He, there was a kid at school who would bring his own guitar to school to play. He was a couple years older. And so he pestered this kid to show him what chords were and, like, how you play. But he really, he did genuinely have an innate knowledge. And so he would just sit down and teach himself to play along with the records he was listening to at home. He was into it, too. Like, he would take his guitar to school then. Apparently, he was messing with it too much, and teachers would take it away from him and then give it back to him at the end of the day. And he would spend upwards of six or seven hours a day playing it. Wow. I'm, I'm sure not every day. Reading that, I was like, man, if Call of Duty or World of Warcraft had existed in the 1950s, there might never have been a thing called Led Zeppelin, ever. Might like, not have been rock and roll. Might not have been rock and roll. At the age of 13, he appeared on a television talent show program as part of a quartet playing skiffle music, which was popular at the time. I believe this was typified generally by... It was an American form that had migrated, but it was like jug bands. Sure. And you were playing skiffle. improvised instruments. Um, so yeah, he was, a big, he was a big skiffle guy. Uh, John Lennon's The Quarrymen were a skiffle band. You gotta get your start somewhere. Skiffling. There you go. After their performance, again, this kid's 13, the host asks Jimmy what he wants to be when he grows up, and he oh says, my. I want to do biological research to find a cure for cancer if it isn't discovered by then. What? Can you imagine, more than 60 years ago, a kid thought cancer might be cured in the next decade or so. If not, though, he might just swoop in and do it. You don't know. Jimmy. You don't know. Look at you and your big, ambitious dreams. Amazing. Also, it's 2023 and cancer is not cured. So, Jimmy, get on that. still time. <laughs> By 15, he was a veteran of several bands, none of which showed much in the way of promise as successful enterprises, but where Jimmy, who was then going by James Page, was already exhibiting a flair for style. A bandmate from his early teenage years remembers that Jimmy liked Italian jackets, Italian shoes, and very, very tight pants. Fifteen is also the age at which he first encountered the work of noted occultist and heroin abuser Aleister Crowley. Reading the book Magic and Theory and Practice for the first time, his reaction, Yes, that's it. My thing. I've found it. This will end up being kind of, I mean, I don't know about lifelong. I don't know if he's still into all that, but definitely his formative years and early career deeply enmeshed in occult Magic. themes. Magic. Mm-hmm. Also, here's a little Alicia catnip from Chris Salowich, who wrote Jimmy Page, the definitive biography. Quote, in time, Page would become a student of astrology. He would learn that in his astrological chart, his moon was in moody cancer 
His sun sign was determinedly ambitious Capricorn, and he had a Scorpio rising with its suggestion of powerful sexuality and interest in arcane areas of life. Holy cats, I just heard Capricorn Sun, Cancer Moon, which are opposing signs, and rising in Scorpio. Holy cats. Have yeah, we, have we a, just summed up Jimmy Page for you? That's Is a that... lot in some tight pants right there. One day at school, young Jimmy Page had the temerity to explain his professional ambitions to the deputy headmistress there, a Miss Nicholson. <laughs> No longer content to confine himself to curing cancer, young Jimmy explained that he intended to be a pop star after graduation. Great. Miss Nicholson could not contain her disdain. Jimmy had four O levels, which I think means he had passed the tests yeah, to advance. Yeah, he's doing into, great. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure that she thought he was a lock for the cancer curing thing. An argument ensued, and Jimmy, knowing that at 15 it was now legal for him to quit school, did just that. <gasps> Just because you don't agree with my vision of being a pop star? I'll what show do you, you Miss Nicholson. What do you mean you won't cure cancer, Jimmy Page? Wow. James Page? James. He dove right into his musical career. He, I guess, had been saving money from the little gigs he'd been playing here and there. So he financed and produced a record for a local band he liked. He joined another, the Crusaders, with whom he toured for a couple of years. Until, shades of Lindsey Buckingham, he fell ill with mono. No. It took him 18 months to fully recover. He would like Whoa. relapse every couple months for a long time. That's terrible. Yeah, he felt like being in a little tour bus and not getting good sleep and eating road food and all that stuff was not working for him. So he enrolled in art school during his recuperation so that he could study painting, which is his second love, but only very shortly behind guitar. Interesting. I yeah. didn't know he was a painter. So, you know, notably not touring the United Kingdom and playing gigs every night. I think he was still showing up to clubs and sitting in for shows when his health allowed. So this led him to some studio work, which led him to Decca Records, hiring him for regular session work. And in 1963, one of his first session pieces, he played guitar for a song called Diamonds. It was instrumental, but it went to number one on the UK charts. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. As a session player, he was known as Lil Jim P because uh, he had to distinguish himself from the other A-plus session guitarist of the day, Big Jim Sullivan. Oh, my God. Lil Jim, Big Jim. Lil Jim, Big Jim. But it was through this session work that he met the constellation of London's finest up-and-coming rock stars. He contributed guitar parts to the Kinks' debut album, The Who's first single, to Marianne Faithful, to The Rolling Stones, to Van Morrison, to Petula Clark, Downtown. Wow. Mm -hmm. He even recorded some of the incidental music that was used in the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night film released in 1964. He also had his first grown-up romance in this period with American singer-songwriter Jackie DeShannon, who was herself a pioneer as a woman singer-songwriter at this period of the invention of rock and roll. And also she worked with Burt Bacharach and Hal David, who've been popping up recently in our the spider webs are too much. In our episodes, uh, the relationship between Jackie and Jimmy ended probably in 1965. And this is the same year that Jimmy's friend and Trashy Divorces alum, Eric Clapton, decided to leave a little band called the Yardbirds. Jimmy was offered his slot, but he was doing well as a session player. And he had not forgotten his long bout with mono. So he passed on this in 65. 
recommending his buddy, Jeff Beck, but when the Yardbirds bass player left in 66, he leapt at the chance. There was some shuffling. He and Beck would become co-lead guitarists, but the Yardbirds never really took off commercially. They were influential, obviously, but I don't know. They just didn't catch fire the way that, I don't know, Led Zeppelin did. Sure. By 68, they were kind of done. And the new Yardbirds group, Led Zeppelin, was the culmination of all the years of learning and observing and adapting and absorbing that he had been engaged in ever since finding that Spanish guitar in the house on Miles Road. Boom! This is probably a good place to take a quick break, hear from our sponsors. And when we get back, we're going to talk about Led Zeppelin, abusive sea creatures and women, and a certain very underage girl. See you on the flip, friends. Sea creatures, Stacy. <laughs> Abusive sea creatures, Alicia. In November of 1971, Led Zeppelin, then a hugely successful band, released its fourth album, again, technically untitled but known to the public as for four symbols, Zoso or Runes. Jimmy's concept for the album art was to downplay both the band's name and the album's track titles. So artsy. So instead, each of the band members chose a symbol they liked, and that's what went on the label on the record. Now, keep in mind that Jimmy already had a bit of a reputation as some sort of practitioner of dark magic, or maybe a Satanist, or maybe a Satanist who practiced dark magic. Who knows? So this stylistic choice certainly added to and enhanced the group's aura of supernatural danger, which, as a marketing tool, it infuriated the correct people, and it gave a sense of liberation to people who would likely buy their record. Like, it was just, it was, it was brilliant. Again, I, I'm not sure how serious Jimmy Page was about any of this, but but it was as it was marketing gold. No, they were phenomenal. They were yeah, literally phenomenal. They turned rock and roll on its edge. Let's talk a little about the album before we get into what transpired during their sojourn in Los Angeles on the album's supporting tour because they were going to California mm. first. As of 2021, this album whatever you want to call it, has sold 24 million copies in the United States alone and 37 million globally. And that could be two years out of date. The album featured a song you may have heard of, Stairway to Heaven. Amazingly, it was never released as a single, Stairway to Heaven, but it became the most requested and the most played song on American rock radio in the the entire decade of the 1970s. I believe that. Our little Easter egg for Patreon folks is going to get into some groupies and some Stairway to Heaven. Sure. So if you're Patreon, be on the lookout for that at the end, because, whoa. Led Zeppelin's fourth album is basically just a list of musical gems. Misty Mountain Hop, The Battle of Evermore, featuring Sandy Denny, who met her own tragic fate. Going to California, Black Dog, When the Levee Breaks. There's more. It's just as good as its reputation suggests. And the band, Led Zeppelin, by now, was an experienced touring act and experienced at the particular acts of debauchery that 1970s touring (laughs) rock stars could and did indulge in. I mean, sometimes to their death, like including their own drummer. But like Keith Moon popped up a lot in researching this. There, there are a lot of ties between it's, it. It was a tragic period in music as well. Back in 1969, for instance, there were allegedly two incidents involving sea life that simply have to be discussed on a show called Trashy Divorces. 
First, let me tell you a story about a shark or perhaps a red snapper that met a bad end. Seattle, May 1969. Seattle's Edgewater Inn is built over a pier, and back in the day, it advertised that you could fish from your windows. Oh, no. They rented poles. This is a terrible, terrible idea. Gear, sold bait, and the gift shop. So you could just go to your hotel room and fish out your windows? Out the window. The Beatles (sighs) famously did so. There's a 1964 picture of them fishing out of their window at the Edgewater Inn. But apparently the Edgewater banned that somewhere along the line because housekeeping kept finding dead fish and such in the rooms. Oh. Yeah. Anyways, Epp stayed there on this particular occasion when, the story goes, drummer John Bonham and tour manager Richard Cole tied a red-headed 17-year-old from Portland to a bed and began inserting a mud shark, or perhaps a red snapper, (gasps) that they had caught earlier into her vagina and rectum. There are a lot of questions about the details, including whether it was Led Zeppelin or the band Vanilla Fudge, or perhaps some other band that did this, or collection of musicians from various. But it doesn't appear that the event itself is much disputed to have occurred. It also doesn't appear that the woman in question called the... I mean, certainly there, was no, there were no police called. There were no... Was she into it? I don't know. Oh I, my god. I'm stunned. Yeah, that was... that. It's not a not a pretty thing to read at this i think at the time they all laughed it off but i I feel like robert plant and his wife were in the hallway watching this happen they're slapping the woman with the fish and uh he and his wife decided it was a little too unsavory and and left if it's too unsavory for robert plant i mean the second sea life incident these are the legends that make led zeppelin the second sea life incident involves jimmy page himself the band played a couple of dates in Pasadena, California, going to California, and for some reason, they were gifted live octopuses by the promoter of the show. After what happened at the Edgewater, didn't anybody get the memo? Good lord. Maybe they did get the memo. Anyway, <sighs> the story goes that Jimmy got a couple of groupies back to his hotel room, which of course was not a difficult thing to accomplish, suggested that they take a bath, and once they were in the tub, he threw four octopuses in the tub with them. Jesus Christ. And then sat back to watch the show. (gasps) No! Apparently, this was sort of seen as all in good fun behavior. Excessive, debauched, sure, but... okay. are not enough drugs in the world to make that fun. Even if you accept the premise that the young women involved here were okay with being treated this way, the ocean creatures that were abused in the process certainly deserve better. And yes, the women did too. That's weird. Okay. So let's return to 1972 in Los Angeles, state of California. And for this account, I will turn over the reins to Stephen Davis, author of the 1985 Led Zeppelin retrospective Hammer of the Gods, which is a line from Immigrant Song, which I may have known this as a teenager, but I really only realized this week. This is actually a song about uh, the firsthand telling of like the Viking conquest of England or something, which sort of makes it hilarious. Bunch of Brits. We come from the land of ice and snow, sailing to the western shore. I don't, I don't know the lyrics, but whatever. I hadn't listened to it in years. This is again from Stephen Davis's Hammer of the Gods, a book that the band hates, by the way. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. When Led Zeppelin hit Los Angeles, they moved into the Continental Hyatt House on Sunset Boulevard and settled into now familiar routines. Rehearsing, one recorded rehearsal featured dozens of Elvis tunes, and hanging out at Hollywood rock clubs. 
Jimmy linked up with his friend, Miss Pamela. That would be Pamela DeBar. Who was with the GTOs, Girls Together Outrageously. Mm -hmm. We're going to follow up on that in our Easter egg. She was sort of the preeminent groupie of the day. Or or became. Oh, yeah. Because she's written like five or seven Mm -hmm. memoirs about it. Okay. And all seemed normal until Jimmy started to chase a 14-year-old teen model named Lori Maddox. Nope. Lori was a pretty girl, tall and dark like Jimmy, with prominent features and giant eyes. She reminded people of a prepubescent Bianca Jagger. Her picture had been in Star Magazine, and earlier in the year, she had met B.P. Fallon, who had been in L.A. with Silverhead. Fallon had taken some pictures of Lori, which he now showed to Jimmy as representative of the new, younger generation of rock groupies. Jimmy was smitten. According to Lori, Beep gave Jimmy her number, and Jimmy called her from Texas and said, Hi, this is Jimmy Page, and I want to meet you. Lori thought it was a crank call and said, Yeah, right, buddy, sure, (laughs) and hung up on him. But she was intrigued. When Led Zeppelin came to town, Lori and some of her friends went over to the Hyatt house to hang around the rooftop pool where Jimmy began to hit on her. But her friends told her that Miss Pamela would beat the shit out of her if she caught Lori messing with her man, Jimmy Page. Oh, yeah. Pamela was genuinely in love with Jimmy Page and for a time, I think I think I have quotes from her later, for a time was intending to be faithful to him. Mick Jagger talked her out of that. So. Oh, Mick. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay, back to the book. I was still a virgin then, Lori says, and I said to him, look, Mr. Page, I really can't talk to you. <laughs> Mr. Like, Page. Mr. Page, <laughs> I really can't talk to you. Like, I don't want to get beaten up. But Jimmy said, honey, if you come with me, nobody will touch you. Except Jimmy Page. Okay. Lori says that Jimmy chased her all over the city, following her to to Rodney's, then to the pool at the Hyatt house, then to Robert Plant's suite to dry off. There, she and the other new girls on the scene, Sable Starr, Len, and the others, spent the evening throwing empty champagne bottles out the window, trying to hit the big rock and roll billboards across the street. Jimmy, she says, was never involved in the insane antics that Led Zeppelin perpetrated at the Hyatt causing the locals to rename the place, this I love this, the Continental Riot House. Mm-hmm. Continental Hyatt House. Jimmy instead was quiet and reserved, an amused observer of the brainless carnage rather than a participant. The next night, Lori was again at Rodney's English Disco with her girlfriends when Jimmy came in with Miss Pamela. Lori went to the powder room and Jimmy followed her in. This girl is 14 no, years old. She's- 14 years old, you are a 28-year-old man. And started groping and kissing her, quote, in front of everybody. And I'm going, my God, you can't do this. Stop, you're going to get me killed. Of course, I really liked him, but I was afraid of him. I was only 14, Mm. and this was a much older man. I didn't really know who he was, and I was, like, too young to understand. And my girlfriends were begging me to stay away. They told me that Jimmy would beat me up if he got me alone. Wonder where that came from. I am horrified. Lori then left Rodney's and went to the Rainbow Bar, the main watering hole for English rock stars in Los Angeles. Jimmy showed up soon after without Miss Pamela trying to find Lori. Jimmy was determined. He sent tour manager Richard Cole over to her table. And Richard said, Jimmy told me that he's going to have you whether you like it or not. No, just stop, Mr. Page. All of a sudden, Lori continues, Jimmy's party left the rainbow in a hurry. Jimmy jumped into his limo and roared off after telling Richard Cole that if he let me out of his sight, Jimmy would fire him. So Richard Cole grabbed me and said, you fucking move and I'll fucking have your head. He threw me into the back of another limo and said, now sit there and shut up. 
I asked him what was going on, but he just said to shut up. This is kidnapping. This is kidnapping. This is kidnapping. This is kidnapping a child. This is sexual trafficking of a child. Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody's real clear on that. Okay. Next thing you know, we're all back at the riot house. We're walking down the corridor of one of Zeppelin's floors, and suddenly I got snatched, kidnapped, into a room. It was dimly lit by candles, and at first I couldn't really see. And then I saw Jimmy, just sitting there in a corner, wearing this hat slouched over his eyes and holding a cane. It was really mysterious and weird. He was just sitting there, tapping this cane on the floor, in a chair, in the corner. He looked just like a gangster. It was magnificent. Can you believe it? It was just like right out of a story. Kidnapped man at 14. Then we were finally alone. Nobody could beat up on me, and I wasn't too afraid. So we peeked out a crack in the door until we were sure that nobody was in the hall, and then we disappeared into this other room that Jimmy had, and that was the beginning of our romance. We, like, fell in love. From that day on, we were, like, together. He'd come to town, and he'd station himself in the riot house and send a car to pick me up. Then he'd take off to do concerts and fly back the same night to be with me, And we were together. We were madly, madly in love. It was like a fantasy or a fairy tale. Yes, yes, it was. She continues, but the others were really against me at the time. Why would that be? They were concerned because somebody warned them that if Jimmy was discovered with a 14-year-old girl, he'd be deported immediately. You think? So Jimmy kept me locked in a room at all times. Both Peter Grant and Richard Cole, those are, that's the band manager and the tour manager, insisted that I be kept locked up. They didn't let me go anywhere because I was so underage. Nobody ever said anything to Jimmy and me, but I just vibed it. Eventually, we all became friends. Jimmy met my mom and everything. He called her one day and said, I hope you don't mind that I'm seeing your daughter. He was a real gentleman. And she knew that he was a really respectable guy and that he had money. And I mean, what was she going to say? You know, she knew I was doing it anyway. So she figures if I'm going to be doing it, who better with? Rock stars have kidnapped my child. Okay, Francis McDormand. I mean, he was a real romance. He's the most romantic person in the world. He's so sweet and gentle, like the perfect man, almost feminine in his way. Oh my God. And like really sensitive, super sensitive. When he came to town, he'd send a car for me and I'd like go meet him at the airport. And then we'd get back to the hotel and we'd run straight to our room and we'd sit on the floor and we'd start crying because we were so happy to see each other again. He'd give me presents, like an old scarab necklace to keep away evil spirits, and I'd give him, like, an antique music box or something. It was real sweet. And it was really an innocent, beautiful, perfect love, you know? Like, he knew I just loved him for himself and nothing else. She also talks about, like, hours-long lovemaking sessions, so just so we're clear on the sweet and innocent. She says that things trailed off between them about 1975 when Heroin and his new girlfriend, Bibi Buell, captured the majority of Jimmy's attention. So, uh, Jimmy Page and the entire Led Zeppelin organization was apparently fully aware that he was engaging in a crime with this relationship. And rather than, I don't know, not do the criming, he instead did the criming and the whole universe of people around him went to great lengths to keep that crime very very private. So that is just ducky. And listen, Laurie Maddox was born on November 29th, 1958, and has also claimed that it was in fact David Bowie who took her virginity in a three-way with friend and fellow groupie Sable Starr. But Sable Starr has disputed that account and says that Laurie 
had been hanging out with them on the night in question, but had left by the time she and David, whatever. In any case, David Bowie's October 1972 Ziggy Stardust tour stop in L.A., where this supposedly happened, occurred several months after the June 1972 Led Zeppelin going to California visit. God, the 70s were trashy. I won't claim to understand groupie culture in the 60s and 70s, but maybe it is worth consulting someone who does. One Miss Pamela DeBar. She said this to The Guardian in 2018 after all of the Harvey Weinstein stuff had become public and Me Too was underway. Quote, a groupie is someone who loves the music so much she wants to be around the people who make it. A fan is content with an autograph or a look from the stage or a selfie. A groupie takes the next step, and that takes a lot of courage. But they do so totally willingly, sometimes hoping for a romance or a one-night stand, or sometimes hoping to marry them. And she, of course, did ultimately marry Michael DeBar, British rock star. They divorced later, but anyway, she continues. I was the muse, and I don't care what people say about that. Groupies enhanced these people's lives in a huge way, and if it weren't for us, they would not be who they are. She goes on to say, I was in love with Jimmy, and I was going to be true to him. At this point, I had only slept with four people. People think I was this wild, insane maniac, but there was Mick Jagger. Mick was number five. He convinced me that Jimmy was not being true to me on the road, so I decided, okay, I've wanted this guy forever. I might as well do it. And we had this long-term fling that was really awesome. She went to London later and stayed with him at his, I think, Chelsea or Soho. Anyway, and she talks about how, like, having sex with Jagger on, like, his own pillows on his couch or whatever was the greatest thing that ever happened in the world. And it's She's an interesting person. She really is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fascinating she, she character. Was, she was not 14 when the, she was... No, legal. She was legal. Yeah. She was an adult making adult decisions. And, you know, since this is now the Me Too era, The Guardian asks about her friend Lori Maddox and whether, in her estimation, Lori was abused by Jimmy and perhaps other men, too. She was not abused, is DeBar's firm conviction, because that's what she wanted. Yeah, she was young, and nowadays 15 is not what it used to be. And prior to that era, 15 was not what it became. It was just a period in time where things like that happened and it was okay. It was a short period in time, but it was our reality and everyone was okay with it. So The Guardian also spoke to Lori herself for a separate piece. I'll quote from that. Now, 59, she says she never thought of herself as a groupie, but tells me that the affair with Paige was, quote, the most beautiful, pure love I thought I could ever feel. I'd only had sex once before in my whole life. I felt like I'd won the lottery. She juxtaposes it with other experiences, quote, where men have harassed me, It's a different thing when you allow someone to be with you. Maddox was under the age of consent, she says, when Paige pursued her. Post Me Too, does she see the situation differently? Quote, I think that's what made me start seeing it from a different perspective, because I did read a few articles and I thought, shit, maybe. She says, as for whether Paige was in the wrong, quote, that's an interesting question. I never thought there was anything wrong with it, but maybe there was. I used to get letters telling me that he was a pedophile, But I'd never think of him like that. He never abused me, ever. Still, Maddox sounds conflicted. Rapturous reminiscences, honestly, I had a great time, are followed by cautionary notes. I don't think underage girls should sleep with guys. I wouldn't want this for anybody's daughter. My perspective is changing as I get older and more cynical. Alicia, this is probably a nice spot to take another quick break. 
And when we come back, we're going to return to Jimmy Page, the end of Led Zeppelin, his marriages, and something I'm going to call radish royalty. I'm just happy that we're back to generic trashy divorces now. Back in a minute, y'all. So Zeppelin has a 10-year ride, and then it all comes crashing down. Yeah, so the Yardbirds, while not captivating the music world, had indeed been quite experimental. So when Led Zeppelin came together, Jimmy already had a long list of things he wanted to incorporate into their live shows and into their the way they structured music and all of it. They amped things up considerably with lighting. They used lasers, light shows, mirror balls, and so on. Just like a very professionalized approach to lighting. This is stuff that we as audience goers today at big shows fully expect, but at the time it was it was novelty. It was new. They Led Zeppelin began this. They amped touring up in a very different way than any other band had done. Yeah, and then when you factor in the substances that a Led Zeppelin concert goer might be indulging in at the time, it sure, really Sure, sure. Really it it was a, a loop. It was a self fulfilling fulfilling yeah, sure. <laughs> It was an atmospheric effect that enhanced all the other stuff. Jimmy also took the extravagant guitar hero, guitar god role very seriously. So he'd play, you know, a a double-necked electric guitar with a bow. And so just over-the-top performance stuff, which, I mean, if you're a performer, why not, right? But as with everything new and great, over time, it tends to become a bit of a caricature of itself. And this was true for Led Zeppelin. In their 1977 U.S. tour, there were big, big problems. The heroin, for one, was everywhere. God, there's a story they tell. I think they were in Asia, and they went. their manager went looking for a bag of Coke for them and comes back with something. And they were all quite greedy about it at that point, and he said they just stuck their straws directly into the bag. But oh, God. It, it wasn't Coke. It was heroin. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. It's weird that they all, well, they didn't all survive this. It's weird that most of them survived this. So yeah, the heroin was everywhere and it was impacting the band's ability to perform. Jimmy had to sit through, sit through, not stand through, sit through what turned into a pretty truncated 65 minute long show in Chicago on this tour before stomach cramps forced him off stage. Management said that it was food poisoning, but no, 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 it was drugs. In July, the band arrived in San Francisco for shows at the Oakland County Coliseum, promoted by none other than Bill Graham, noted promoter. It was probably predictable that things would go sideways, because by this point, the band had hired notorious London gangster John Binden, the guy who hung out with Princess Margaret on her mystique Cougar Island wearing a shirt with cocaine and a Coca-Cola-style logo emblazoned on it to coordinate the band's security. I'm going to put the (laughs) mystique... Princess Cougar Island Cougar episode Island. up on the bit.ly trash candy link. Because yeah. we have talked about John Long, Bender. long ago. I think also the Baker Street robbery included him, if I'm not mistaken. He's come up. There were two shows scheduled in Oakland. But when a an employee of Bill Graham spotted somebody in the Zeppelin camp, it turned out to be the 11-year-old son of their manager, So this kid is taking name signs off of dressing room doors, and one of the venue security people who works for Bill Graham sees this. There's an altercation, and the Graham employee may have pushed or slapped the kid. Nothing reasonable happened here, but, like, he was just trying to get the kid to stop. He didn't know who the kid was. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So this incident was seen by Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham, Bonzo, as he was called by the group, He goes and kicks the venue guy. Oh, God. And later, Bonham 
John Benden, the London gangster uh-huh. who's coordinating security, the band's manager, so the kid's dad, and the band's tour manager corner the venue guy in his trailer and just beat the living hell out of him. Three, oh, my three God. Of them, three of them do the beating. Um, the road manager stood guard at the door. So <sighs> it was a serious assault. The guy had to go to the hospital to get patched up, and Bill Graham had him stay at his house to hide out while Led Zeppelin was in town. Led Zeppelin's lawyers, meanwhile, reach out to Bill Graham with a letter of indemnification for him to sign, basically saying that no one can sue the Led Zeppelin people for that. For that. For, for the, the assault. For the violent assault. Good Lord. Yeah. yeah and, you know, they kind of, certainly the band cannot play the second scheduled show without this letter in hand, you know. Oh, you know, no. and There are 65,000 people with tickets to tomorrow night's show. And, I mean, if you cancel that show, like, they might riot. You don't know. A lot of stuff. So Bill Graham reaches out to his own lawyer who's like, look, this is a classic case of duress. Sign the letter because that is not enforceable. You do you, bro. Wow. So he did. And the second show apparently went off better than the first one did because they were relatively sober for it. Right after that, uh, Bill Graham had the four attackers arrested uh, the following morning. So basically, while the arrests were happening, I think actually this happened maybe a couple of days later. I think they were arriving in New Orleans. The attackers were bailed out and they pleaded NOLO at some point. Anyway, Robert Plant receives a phone call from London from his wife telling him that their five-year-old son had fallen ill and had been taken to a hospital. Oh, no. A short time later, she called again and their son had died of some sort of stomach virus. I'm assuming dehydration oh. and maybe seizures became involved, like 78, 77, 78. Ugh. The rest of the tour was canceled. Five-year-old boy. Almost more tragically for Robert Plant, if you're just going to compound horribles at this moment, two of the bandmates didn't show up for the son's funeral. No. John Paul Jones had already skipped out for vacation with his own family in America. He just stayed gone. And Jimmy Page, rather than fly to England to be there, flew to Egypt. Went on some kind of bender, I think. Well, that's not a lot of support for your bandmate. No. John Bonham was the only one. Anyway, they did come together for one more album before the final tragedy of the band, recording In Through the Outdoor, which was released in late 79, as they resumed touring to support the album in 1980. Problems appeared pretty much right away. In Nuremberg, Germany, in late June, John Bonham collapsed on stage and was rushed to the hospital. Uh In September, after a day of rehearsals for their forthcoming U.S. tour, a drunk John Bonham passed out after midnight at Jimmy Page's house, where they were all staying. He was taken to bed by his bandmates. The next day, John Paul Jones and the band's tour manager discovered him dead in his bed. He had asphyxiated on vomit from extremely excessive vodka intake. Interestingly, given the band's legendary hedonism and drug use, the autopsy found no sign of other drugs in his system. Wow. So I don't know if that means the whole band had kind of cleaned up from heroin or maybe he had not himself been into it. I'm not sure. It was interesting, though. Like, just alcohol killed him. That's terrible. There was talk of having another drummer fill in and, you know, proceeding with the tour. But I think by now the band members felt like they had experienced the full arc of the Led Zeppelin project and opted to disband. The music and the musicians have remained a cultural force in the decades since, of course. As for Jimmy Page, he went on to marry a couple of times from 1986 to 1995. 
and again from 1995, hmm, what happened that first time, to 2008, <laughs> and has been partnered since 2014 to poet Scarlett Sabet, who was 25 when she started dating the 70-ish-year-old Jimmy, so I guess he's probably still got it. I don't know exactly how to feel about the adventures of the early rock groupies, or especially the, the baby groupies, which was what Laurie Maddox and her cohort were called. Talking it through with one of our friends, she made the really good point about how thoroughly sexualized young women and girls were back then, but with, you know, the focus of a heat-seeking missile directed at marriage, right? Like, women existed for one purpose, sure. and that was absolutely marriage, family, like, the domestic sphere, the raising of children. With the advent of birth control and then the Roe v. Wade decision, women suddenly had choices into how they could deploy or capitalize on or just enjoy that sexuality that was so integral to the reason they exist on the earth. That's right. And a lot of them wanted to be in the hot beating heart of rock and roll royalty at the birth of the movement of that weird industry. None of which is to say that adults should be seducing young teens, quite the contrary, nor is it all right that the Zeppelin organization took such pains to protect Jimmy from the consequences of his choices so that he might remain financially viable as a touring musician in America. So yeah, that's all complicated, and I don't know how to feel about it. But Alicia, I will close with our radish royalty catnip for you. Oh, goody. Alicia catnip. This anecdote comes from the Hammer of the Gods book. I've paraphrased it for brevity. This time period, 1972 to 1975 or so, Led Zeppelin was intensely competitive with the Rolling Stones, who were enjoying significantly more media attention in the U.S. Because they were less weird. I mean, I don't... Bottom line, I mean, it, Mick Jagger wasn't flirting with the occult, you know? Like, anyway. Celebrities were constantly thronging the Stones backstage with giant names like Stevie Wonder, who were only too happy to open for them. No one opened for Zepp on their 72 tour. Rolling Stone magazine barely mentioned the band, and after reading about Andy Warhol, Truman Capote, and Princess Lee Radzowell partying at multiple stops on the Stones tour, Zeppelin members were sometimes heard wondering aloud, why haven't we got these people like Princess Radish here? Princess Radish. Princess Radish, Lee Radzowell. So Lee Radzowell and Peter Beard went with Truman Capote. Truman Capote was reporting on this I think for he was filmed, Rolling yeah. Stone. Yeah, I think he had a, a video camera with him. It, he flaked out. This is going to come back up in a future story. But yeah, Princess Radish. Aww. I'm giving this, I'm giving Jimmy Page 300 million trash cans. That's 300 million. That's like Led Zeppelin is apparently sold between 200 and 300 million albums globally since uh, that first one. And uh, <laughs> so 300 million trash cans. Yeah. Sounds right. Sounds right. I guess we could also have gone with 14, but that's oof. We here at Trashy Divorces do not condone any part of yeah. what happened in this story. Good Lord. No. Terrible. Be nice to see creatures and girls. <sighs> don't kidnap. Don't. Don't kidnap. Deal in child trafficking. This is all terrible. I would say thank you, Stacy, but I'm not exactly sure how to feel about that. I mean, I think we're both due for a shower after that. I think a lot of people have requested that story. We hope that you are delighted and happy by the trashiness that is Jimmy Page. We have a fun Easter egg bonus at the end. Stay tuned for that. We're going to have a lot of fun on Patreon this week. Again, big thanks 
to all of our Patreon supporters getting the goodies over there. And the Easter egg bonuses. Be sure to go to bit.ly slash trashcandy. We've got a few fun free episodes if you want to hear what Patreon is like. I think that is the longest word count story I have ever given us here at Trashy Divorces. We're going to have a talk offline that you did not fully prep me for that. I know whatever I did to you last week really horrified you, but I think I'm equally as horrified this week. So awesome. Thanks everybody for tuning in to this episode. We are going to be back with you this weekend with ooh, kind of an interesting story. Think y'all will enjoy that one until we meet again, friends. Keep your hands clean. Seriously, seriously. Just after that, just go wash them now. Keep your hearts trashy. No, like, not 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 keep, that trashy. No. Don't break any laws. Like we say trashy in the best essence of good fun. None of that was good fun. I I just keep your hearts clean too. Keep your hands clean and keep your hearts clean. Everything clean. No 70s. The 70s was so weird. <laughs> Big love, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.